Uh, I want to make a note. Of course, you, in the bulletin, you have the little handout things. Uh, with uh, This one has the different stories of the crucifixion blended together. I also, I, I meant to do this the whole time, and I just never for remembered uh, to send those in the email as PDFs, so you have those, those who get the bulletin in the email. Uh, th that was hopefully included with that. As we're thinking about the cross, we are not going to look at everything on that page, the, the different four different crucifixion accounts. It, it's really long. As we're, we're going to think about this, it's a long story. We can't do it all in one week, and and I've decided to narrow the fo focus as we think about the cross narrative because you can learn a lot about someone when they're under extreme duress. This is Jesus probably under the most duress that his entire life ever experienced. Now, you might say 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. That was quite a bit of a duress. This is more compressed, right? More compacted. As he's, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, experiencing the temptation. The devil comes to him and tempts him. That's a, a major trial, major tipping point. We looked at the garden. Uh, that's another one of these, these sort of threshold moments where Jesus is sort of tipping one way or the other and he ultimately overcomes. Here at the end, all of that is compressed down to the space of a few hours as we think about the extreme suffering of Jesus. And what we learn under these moments of extreme duress and I would encourage you to, through this week, read the entire narrative. I've given you the whole thing in the bulletin. Read the entire narrative. Think about it. Focus on it. But today I want to consider the, what, quote-unquote, seven sayings. The seven sayings from the cross. Jesus' seven statements, seven words, uh, phrases. Uh, and you don't find all of them in one gospel, right? You have to put it, all the gospels together to find these. But what they tell us about Jesus in these last moments. There's two statements, showing his love for others. We're going to look at these. We're not going to go in this order. We're going to go mostly in chronological order, I think. Uh, one statement, acknowledging physical agony. Two statements, contrasting his feelings for the Father. Ooh, a lot to unpack in his feelings for the Father at this moment. One statement regarding the enormity of his task. What's going on here? What he's feeling, the weight of what he's feeling. And then one, one statement emphasizing, even at the end, his authority, his authority and power to judge. Now, we're going to go mostly chronological order. Some of these are judgment calls, as, of course, we're smushing together four different accounts of the cross. But I, I think mostly chronological order as we go through the story of the cross here. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, some, ver uh, some uh, not versions, uh, the other gospel writers, some of the other gospel writers say Golgotha, right? There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who's the them here? We need to focus in on the them as we think about this statement. This is not the criminals. We understand the criminals, they deserve to die. We'll talk about the criminals in just a minute. He's talking not about the criminals, although in Luke it does maybe seem to be this way, but those who are crucifying him, those who are gathered around, and we're going to see it as we go, forgive them for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood nearby watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
We have the people who stood nearby watching. We have the rulers who are scoffing at him. We have the soldiers who are mocking him. Three groups of people, the general sort of assembly, and people with various positions of authority. Of course, the rulers, those would be those who instigated this whole deal, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. We have the soldiers. They're not necessarily Jews per se. They're just sort of following orders, right? We had this trial, and now Jesus needs to be crucified, and so the soldiers are carrying out their orders. But they are, of course, still mocking. They see the inscription. They've not been involved in the story the whole time. But what he's being crucified for, this inscription at the top, here's the king of the Jews, a mocking inscription. And the soldiers are leaning in to the mockery. Oh, you're the king of the Jews? Obviously, save yourself, man. Of course, the rulers are saying that. The people are saying that. And the statement of Jesus, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they are ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. And of course, the great irony, the great irony in this text, the inscription is correct. It is correct. He is the king of the Jews. Their ignorance in failing to see that point. That, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I've told you this over and over and over. You think I'm lying. You think I'm blaspheming. You think I'm, I'm saying things that I shouldn't. God, forgive them because they are stupid. Essentially is what he's saying. They're ignorant, poor, lost sheep who are doing this horrific thing, not knowing what they're doing. And the second layer to this is this is a very layered idea. They also don't know that they're providing the mechanism for their own salvation. They're providing the sacrifice that will end up saving them in just a few days' time. Will end up for many of them on the day of Pentecost, being the pivotal moment of their own conversion story. The things that they're doing, crucifying the king of the Jews, crucifying maybe someone they thought was a blasphemer, crucifying a criminal, crucifying ultimately the one who will save them from their sins. Their ignorance in seeking some sort of justice or perverted justice and yet Jesus loves them so much. It's hard for me to imagine the kind of grace involved in this statement. To consider the heart that would even say such a thing. I know you're killing me really horribly, but I just want you to be forgiven. But ultimately, isn't that the point of what he's going through? Isn't that the entire purpose of what he's doing? If these people can't be forgiven, then what is Jesus even doing on the cross? Please forgive them. Let this not be in vain. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged with him railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Today, uh, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's a lot of theological arguments that come from this verse. That's not the scope of this lesson. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Rather, I want to consider, even at the end of Jesus' life, he has submitted himself to the authority of the Romans, the soldiers. He's submitted himself to the authority of the rulers and the Pharisees, submitted himself to torture and death and condemnation. Even at the end, I have the power to save you. You will be with me today. In paradise. The statement of authority, even at the end, and I don't know, it's hard to know. The people are around him. The people, they're sort of mocking him and, and cursing him and making fun of him, right? They're, they're thinking about how, 
how he deserves what he's doing, what's, what's happening to him. He says this statement, and I wonder those around him, if, it, if they're, my, they're thinking, how dare you? How dare you make that proclamation? You're, you're, you're hanging as a criminal, man. You're about to die. How dare you say that to this man? How could you possibly know that? You don't have that authority. But that's sort of the whole thing. He's been on trial the whole time, right? The authority to forgive. We've looked at these stories over and over. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. We looked at that months ago. Jesus, in the midst of this pain and turmoil and suffering, not only does he consider the man hanging by him, has enough energy to talk to him, but uses his authority, not to save himself, doesn't use his authority to get himself out of consequence, but uses his authority to bless this criminal, to be a blessing to this man. John 19, verse 24, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Of course, in the context of this, it's, it seems clear as you study things, uh, background information of the New Testament, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Joseph has, di has died at this point. Probably, almost certainly. Joseph has died by this point. Mary is a widow. And of course, in the midst of his pain and agony, he's taking effort to ensure care for his mother. What's going to happen to his mother after he dies? Now, the question is, is sort of in the background of this. What about Jesus' brothers and sisters? He has earthly brothers and sisters. What about them? I don't know. He obviously is making also a statement for the disciple whom he loved. I trust you. You take care of my mother. And in the midst of his pain, making sure his mother is cared for. And again, I'm not even sure I would even notice the people around me. Like I'm hanging up on the cross in such agony and pain. I'm not sure I'd even notice. And yet here he is making sure, as we think about these statements, how many of Jesus' final words are for a blessing and benefit to other people. Even the ones who are killing him. His focus at the end, not on himself, but on everyone else. As he's going through this torture and torment. I think about the prophecy in Isaiah 53. It's a long prophecy. You're not going to read all of it. But this line in Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Out of the anguish of his soul, hanging on the cross, he's seeing. Who is he seeing? He's not seeing himself. He's hanging up on a cross. He's seeing the people around him. He's seeing the people around him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Satisfied by what? Well, he's not satisfied that he's dying except in an abstract sense. He's satisfied because the thing that he's doing is going to save the soldiers and the rulers and the robbers and his mother and his friends. He sees out of the anguish and he is satisfied because the thing that he is doing is what they need. They need me to die. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him is what? You think about the ascension, going back to the Father, that's great. He already had that. That's not the joy that was set before him. That's the joy that was behind him when he left that, becoming a human. The joy that was set before him 
the thing that is accomplished by all this is you and me. We are the joy that was set before him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he looks and sees people who need him. And he's satisfied in the midst of his torture and torment. Satisfied. Why? Because by doing this, they will be saved. So he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the throne of God. Now, of course, this is made all the more amazing by the intense agony of his experience. Two statements. One spiritual, one physical. Matthew 27, 45. From the sixth hour there was darkness until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's kind of interesting. I don't know why they've inserted the Hebrew here in the, in the Greek text. Just an interesting statement. Uh, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. I think perhaps that's why it's in the, they've inserted the Hebrew so that, that you understand the bystanders. Eli, Eli. Oh, yeah, he's calling Elijah. That's the same idea. Of course, that Elohim... El, of course, being one of the main components of God's name, a lot of different uh, uh, Hebrew uh, words and names, having the L at the end denoting a God. We could again consider deep theological themes of holiness and, and sin. Think about first, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're not going to read it. That's not the point for us. The point is that Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God. Not that I'm saying he was, but we feel that sometimes, don't we? We feel abandoned, forsaken. We feel like God has abandoned us and left us alone. We feel like God doesn't care. Think about Elijah. Of course, he evokes Elijah. Elijah, who, after the great victory at Mount Carmel, goes into the wilderness. I'm ready to die. I'm the only one that's left. And God comes to him. We think about David, out in the wilderness, who feels forsaken and abandoned over and over in the Psalms. Why am I out here running for my life? Why is this happening to me? Jesus at the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Who had perfect communion with the Father from eternity? Even in the Gospels, we see the communion with the Father. Who feels at this moment that the Father is not with him. And regardless of the truth of that, which is not the scope of this lesson, the empathy that Jesus experiences with you, when you feel that way, he knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. And might I suggest, him knowing what that means is why he goes through this. So that he can be that perfect and faithful high priest who can sympathize, empathize in every way with our weaknesses. Who knows what that's like. And at this moment, faced with a crossroads, persists and keeps going rather than exercising his power to return to the Father. He could have done that, right? Why have you forsaken me? I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to you. Forget this business. But he endures that feeling of abandonment for our benefit. We see the physical side of this. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, now, it seems ludicrous to me. It takes this long. We've gone through a lot of stuff now at the cross to partially give in to the physical agony. I thirst. He rejected this prior. And I suspect it's uh, sour wine. Uh, there's a mixture of things in this thing. 
I suspect he rejected it at the beginning to keep his will, keep his, his wits about him, right? I, I don't want any dulling of the senses. He needs full command of his faculties to resist temptation, to give up. But now at the end, giving in to physical need, physical exertion, although even now at the end, as he's giving in to physical exertion, his concern is more with the scripture. He says it to fulfill scripture. He's held off, he's held off, he's held off. Oh, we need to fulfill the scripture. Even now, in the midst of this torment and agony, again, not thinking of himself, not thinking about what he needs, but thinking of the grander plan, the greater scheme, God's purpose. And ultimately, up until the very end, Jesus kept in his mind why he had chosen to go through this in the first place, who he was doing it for. We've seen already part of that, doing it because he loves us for the joy that was set before him. Why he had decided to go through this was ultimately because it was God's plan. And we looked at that in the garden, right? My God, as he's calling in the garden, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. This monumental task before him. And so we see in John 19, verse 30, when he'd received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. There's a lot to unpack in the words, it's finished. What, what's finished? What is finished? Well, in the most immediate sense, his suffering on the cross. Great relief for him. I did it. It's over. It's done. Finally. Of course, he's about to... He says, there's one more thing he says in just a minute. His earthly ministry, also clothing, coming to a close. It's finished. The 30 years of life that I've, I've dealt with all of this for 30 years... Uh, I lived on this earth 33 years, let's say. Uh, of course, they had 30 years just living a normal life, dealing with human stuff, three years of earthly, earthly ministry. All of that is now finished. Thinking about more symbolically, the old law, it's finished. 6,000 years now, 5,000 years of human history leading up to this moment. 2,000 years of Israelite history all the old law, the exodus, all those things, leading up to this moment, it's finished. In a more general sense, we could think about the suffering of his physical life. It's finished. I don't have to deal with being a person anymore. Hallelujah. But, of course, ultimately, most importantly, what's finished? His part in the plan of salvation. He did it. Up until this point, it, it's been up in the air. Is he going to finish it? Is he going to succeed? Is he going to do it? Yes, now it is finished. He did it. And from this moment on, of course, the Father's going to raise him. He's going to ascend. The Spirit's going to, he talked about already the comforter that he's going to send. And the Holy Spirit, who's going to sort of take over. I, that phrase maybe seems a little weird, but the, the comforter that he's going to send to fulfill the rest of the work, his part primarily, for the most part, is finished. Luke 23, verse 44. The second thing he says right before the end, and it's a little hard to sequence this, again, as you're putting it together, all together. He says it's finished. He says this thing. It's hard to sequence these exactly. I'm not entirely sure which order he would have said these in because different gospel writers are recording different ones. It was now the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole end till the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Even though he just said, why have you forsaken me? Right? He felt abandoned by the father. Still trusted. 
His feelings did not denote reality. I feel like you've forsaken me, but I'm still going to trust in you. A great statement of trust. Not just a feeling of belonging or of presence, because he does not feel like he belongs. He does not feel God's presence, and yet he chooses, nonetheless, to trust the Father. Trust is a decision followed by action and will. I commit my spirit into your hands. And so on the cross we see a Jesus laid bare. His deepest self, motivations, desires, and cares, the core of his being. And I would suggest most of the things that are at the deepest center of Jesus concern us. It's about other people. It's about you and me. It's about the people around him. Even those who are killing him, even those who are torturing him, at the deepest level of his self is love for others, for you and me. We could read a few verses to end. Hebrews 12, 3 through 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, not just on the cross, but really all throughout his life, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle to sin, against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is written to the Hebrews, uh, the, the church, a specific church, not all of the churches. Some of the Christians by this point had resisted to the point of shedding blood. That, that's not universally true, but to the audience that he's writing to in Hebrews, I would suggest, I don't actually know this for a fact, I'm reasonably confident, though, that this applies to us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We think, oh, it's so bad. The world is so horrible. Things have never been this bad. Things are going horribly wrong. The way the world is going. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And so what's the admonition? Consider him who did shedding of blood in agony and horror and suffering, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We have it easy. And yet, so often, we give up. We look at the cross, we encounter Jesus on the cross, and the and admonition, remember he just said in Hebrews 12, who endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, you and me, that joy that was set before him, so that we would not grow weary and faint-hearted, remembering how easy we have it compared to Jesus. And if you don't want to compare yourself to Jesus, how easy we have it compared to many Christians throughout history, even in the world today, to remember his sacrifice and suffering. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, believe, all who obey him. Jesus, as a son, enduring suffering and difficulty, Offering up prayers and supplications, that's what we do, right? We offer up prayer and supplication. God is able to save us, although maybe that's not the plan. It ultimately wasn't the plan for God to save Jesus at the cross. 
Maybe it's not the plan that you be alleviated of your physical suffering. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But if Jesus could endure for you, you owe it to him to endure, to remain faithful and steadfast. And we'll close with 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Jesus, if there's a better way of saying it, I don't know that there is. Jesus suffered according to God's will. Wasn't happy, wasn't pleasant, wasn't nice. It's suffering according to God's will. Let us, those, you and me, as we're suffering according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, hopefully, fortunately for us, most of the time, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. That's not involving our death, most of the time. And for none of us, obviously, because we're still alive. There may come a time where that's the case, maybe. But for most of us, it's the day after day sacrifice that I continue to entrust my soul to a faithful creator. And I continue then to do what? To do good. To submit to his will. What does he say? He became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Because the cross entitles Jesus to your obedience. The cross entitles Jesus to your reverence, your gratitude, and your submission. What he did for you should motivate you to live for him.